On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Brandon Jones about baptism. We cover all sorts of topics like what is the difference between an ordinance and a sacramentalist Baptist? Should we use the term sacrament if we're Baptist? Why or why not? And is sacramentalism even possible as a Baptist? How does covenant theology aid a theology of the sacraments? Why do contemporary Baptists not often tie baptism to covenant theology? And what counts as a valid baptism? Should we accept those baptized as infants into membership if you're a Baptist church? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and I'm joined by Garrett Walden, and we're a podcast that is devoted to serious thinking for a serious church. And one way we've tried to describe what it means to be serious, particularly in our podcast, is by creating or cultivating or hopefully exemplifying an intellectual culture of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So we think Christians, to think well, because we think Christians should think well. Like that is a, a, a requirement to be a, a, a healthy, faithful Christian is to think well about things. And if you're going to do that, you have to have charity as a disposition. You have to have love for another. You have to have care for them. And one way we've tried to describe that is things like curiosity. Curiosity not in the vice sense of being curious just for the sake of, of vain uh, vanity or whatever, but curiosity in the sense of actually taking real interest in other people as people and understanding why they think the way they think. And But we also want to be critical thinkers and we want to be cheerful about it, but we also want to be confessional. We think uh, healthy Christians should be confessional Christians, and we, we see across church history, we've, you know, we have these creedally uh, confessional Christians through the early church centuries, and then you find these developments of these robust, great Protestant confessions of faith, and we say we should use these and uh, deploy them in our local churches and, our, and, and as, as Christians in our own walks and faith and our own families, but we shouldn't do it as a curmudgeon, we should do it as a, a cheerful uh, confessor. All that to say, that's hopefully what we're trying to uh, pursue and cultivate in the podcast. So we have all sorts of people who come on, and it's a, it's a fun uh, sort of thing to do. Now, uh, this is going to be extremely fun for you all who are listening, because we're going to be talking about the doctrine of baptism, particularly sort of a baptistic uh, various accounts of it. And we have Dr. Brandon Jones with us. Brandon Jones has written my favorite book on baptism, hands down. So I'm going to give this super high praise because I think it's as good as, as I'm saying, it's as good as advertised. I tell people all the time when they recommend, when they ask for books on baptism, I say, you need to go get The Waters of Promise by Brandon Jones. I had no idea how to connect with Brandon for a long time because um, I could not find a trace of his identity on the internet. And I'm like, I need to ask him questions. And now we're connected. And this is a great opportunity to talk about an awesome book that you should all go get. Before we do that, Brandon, tell me a little bit about yourself and what was it that drew you to spending so much time working on this? Because this was the fruit of a dissertation. Dissertations are not just, you know, overnight things. Like you had to devote a significant amount of time. I'd love to know why you chose this topic. Well, Jordan, I, I feel like a bad missionary if you had trouble finding me online. Um, but uh, to say a little bit about myself, I was born and raised in Kansas City. And I'm an adoptee, so I was adopted... Um, 
uh, as an infant and by a Christian family and by a Baptist family. So I grew up uh, in a Baptist church and it was on the more fundamentalist side of things, the Baptist Bible Fellowship. So I had a youth pastor that was very influential to me. And uh, when I was young, um, in my teenage years, I knew that I really wanted to serve in some capacity, whether that be as a missionary, as I originally thought, or as a church leader. And so in good fundamentalist fashion, if you wanted to serve the Lord in my church growing up, you had to go to Baptist Bible College in Springfield, Missouri. And so that's where I did my first uh, two degrees. I did a bachelor's degree there in missions and Bible. And when I graduated, I think I was only 22 or so, and I did not feel at all prepared to be a missionary or to be a church leader. I felt like there's so much more for me to learn. So that drew me to um, pursue education more. And I did a Master of Divinity degree at that same school, which um, was still fundamentalist, but our professors, I would say, were um, were a little bit more on the evangelical side because we had to learn Greek, we had to learn Hebrew, we had to learn more things about church history. So our professors kind of towed the line, so to speak, on some of those issues that fundamentalists cared about. Uh, but when I graduated from my Master of Divinity, by then I just had really developed a hunger and thirst for theology. And so I knew that I probably would need to go to a different school to get some more theological education. That brought me to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School where I did a, a Master of Theology degree in Systematic Theology, and I really fell in love with Systematic Theology there. And they had a first-year professor at that time uh, named Dr. Tom McCall, who came from Calvin Seminary. He is a, a staunch Armenian, <laughs> and uh, I just really loved his teaching style, loved what he brought to the table. And so I, I will admit, at this time, here I am in my second master's degree, I'd never heard of Calvin Seminary. Um, but he did his PhD there. I was so impressed with him. And so that drew me to apply to their PhD program. And so I did my PhD at Calvin Theological Seminary. And it was there that this dissertation, which got turned into a book, had its birth. Um, the majority of the students who are doctoral students at Calvin are already Reformed or Presbyterian, but there were some Baptists or Baptistic people and more, more people like us entered the program than graduated. Not because we dropped out, but because a lot of us became reformed <laughs> and were convinced about infant baptism. And so that gave me an opportunity as I was thinking about my own heritage. Um, I always loved being a Baptist. Wherever I did my studies, I always joined a Baptist church. And so it was an opportunity for me to kind of study baptism in depth. Um, personally, what drew me to study baptism was that I was convinced already of believer baptism, but I was a bit frustrated. Um, the church that I grew up with, um, I don't think was unique, but they often focused on what baptism wasn't. You know, it doesn't do this. You know, God isn't at work there. We don't baptize babies. There was kind of a vacuum on what baptism was for. And so I found that um, that left me with a bit of a hunger and thirst to explore that more. And Calvin's PhD program, no matter what discipline you're in, like for me, I was in systematics, they force you, <laughs> you know, maybe in a loving way, to take philosophical theology, moral theology, historical theology. So Richard Muller was still there at that time. And uh, I think at the time he was wanting to expand post-Reformation reform dogmatics to talk about covenant theology. And so we did a symposium or a PhD seminar on covenant theology. And 
every every class you have to write a research paper and so i'm talking with him and uh, he had kind of recently at that time done some work on john gill and so he finds out i'm a baptist and he says well he says you know baptists you guys you guys espouse covenant theology in the past did you know that i said no i didn't growing up fundamentalists the only things i'd heard about covenant theology were bad um, it was something a good Baptist didn't do, and, and we were dispensationalists, you know, so that was even more of a reason to deny covenant theology. So in some ways, the birth of my book was in that covenant theology class. Um, I was introduced to this world that I didn't know about, and I was convinced of it. I said, wow, you know, this makes a lot of sense, um, and even better, Baptists were a part of it too. So that's one part of the book. The other part of the book is trying to figure out the sacramental side of Baptist theology. And there it just kind of was, I would say, a happy accident. Um, as I'm looking at resources, and at that time, early English books online, 17th century collections, was a bit more fresh. And so we we're having access to these um, great documents um, in English from the past that I would have, in the past, would, would have needed to go to Oxford or Cambridge physically to, to get my eyes on. And there I see you have so much writings about Baptist sacramental theology in our roots and in our history. And so as I was putting together my dissertation proposal, I said, is there a way that we can kind of bring these two bodies of literature together, Baptist covenant theology, Baptist sacramental theology? And I had to be careful because we had four readers of my dissertation, three of whom were reformed. And so what I wanted from the outset wasn't to add to the... Um, literature that tried to debate infant baptism versus believer baptism. Um, you know, that wasn't the goal. The goal was, okay, if you are a Baptist like I am, and you are already convinced of believer baptism like I am, then what are the best ways that we can really explore the beauty and the riches that we have in our own tradition and in our own doctrine? And so that led me to, to research this topic for, you know, over a year and, um, and then bring it out to the world in, in book form. That's awesome. And I know me and Garrett have like 10,000 questions that we probably both want to ask. <laughs> I, I will just comment, like your book was like an oasis in a desert for me because at the time I was, I was really wrestling with the doctrine of baptism. And I felt convinced of baptism as like there was, a, there was an objective promise that God is giving us here in this baptism. And it's not just about what I'm, uh, my pledge of allegiance. There's something more objective going on here in addition to it. And I couldn't find Baptist literature that would talk about that. And then I find your book and it's like explaining the way I'm like, wow, this unlocks everything. And this is awesome. So maybe just baseline, explain to me the difference that you would describe between an ordinance only sort of Baptistic understanding and a sacramentalist Baptist understanding. Ordinance only is a phrase I use to describe the view that I grew up with, the view of my church growing up, which was they would not use the word sacrament. They would only use the word ordinance. And a lot of Baptist churches, I think, are like mine, where there are two ordinances. There are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And for me, an ordinance-only position is one where the focus is on the fact that Jesus ordained or commanded that we do these things. Therefore, that is reason enough to do them. And as a sacramentalist, I don't deny that. Of course, I believe we should practice baptism in part because Jesus commands us to do it. What I like about sacramentalism as opposed to ordinance only is I believe it goes beyond the mere fact that Jesus commanded us to do these things. But in good theological fashion, we get to explore what is the gift 
that Jesus is giving us by commanding us to do these things and not other things. Why baptism? Is it important that we use water? How do we practice it? What is happening there? And I think the ordinance-only position truncates that. I mean, you can explore more of the riches of baptism, but I think it, from the start, it kind of limits it to just say, well, Jesus commanded it, that settles it. And it's like, well, yes, and. Yes, Jesus commands it, that settles that we should do it, but why not explore all the different ways that God is ministering to us as a church and as an individual through this beautiful rite called baptism? That's great. Brandon, just as you were introducing yourself, I realized I came across a paper of yours during some of my research about Gill and um, restricted or close, close communion. And so I'm looking forward to coming back around to that question. And um, maybe, maybe later in the, in, the, in the interview, we can come back to that. But I do want to just kind of follow up on that. So would you say sacramentalism um, is a welcome position in the Baptist tradition. Um, I remember being in seminary and basically hearing what, what you just explained, that sacramental language is inappropriate for Baptists. Um, and I remember when I heard that, I was a little bit agitated by it. And so is would you say it's an, an option for Baptists, or it's like this is like the best and original position, or it's... It's just one among a couple of viable options. How would you phrase that? Uh, for me, of course, I'm biased because I am a Baptist sacramentalist. I argue in my book that historically, if you believe like I do, that the Baptists um, sprung up um, mostly in England in the 17th century, then my argument is that the original position of Baptists was a sacramental position. And in my book, um, one of the layers to this is that you do have a variety of terms that are being used to describe things in the church, whether it's practices, theology, and one of those terms is ordinance. And so you have a lot of Baptists in this era that use the word ordinance, but then when you look at how they talk about baptism, it's very clear that they talk about it being a means of grace, that they talk about the Holy Spirit using it to be a sign of the new covenant, maybe even a seal of the new covenant, all these sacramental things. And so for me, I believe that, yes, this was originally our position as Baptists, but to answer your question honestly, today, I would say it is still a minority position in North America, in Brazil, as now I am a missionary in Brazil, and I'm not sure about in the United Kingdom, I couldn't say. One thing that I wanted to dis describe in my dissertation in my book, and I just didn't have time to talk about it, was what happened you have what I think is this original view of sacramentalism in the, in the 17th and even into the 18th centuries. And then by the early 20th century, it's not, it's no longer the dominant position there. It just kind of got replaced by what I labeled the ordinance only view. And I think that the majority of Baptists today still have that ordinance only view. Now I know in, I, I don't think we sent this question to you ahead of time, so feel free to pass on it. But when the Second London Confession was being produced. They took from the Westminster Confession and the Savoy Declaration. And one of the changes that was made was that the Second London uses the language of ordinance and not sacraments. Do you, do you know in some of those early formative, I guess, decades, maybe even the first couple of centuries, was there a, a discrepancy in terminology between 
ordinance and sacrament that maybe that change was intentional or is it you know six one way half a dozen the other i believe that that change probably was intentional um in the literature like um stan stan fowler for example he wrote before i did about baptist sacramentalism and one criticism that was leveled against him was hey you know these british baptists from the eight, from the 17th century are using ordinance language they're not sacramentalists and one of his arguments, and I think he's right because the primary sources show this, is that Baptists were a little bit leery using the word sacrament at this time because they, they believed that an infant was not capable of receiving the sacrament. And so they were kind of wanting to distance themselves from other Christian traditions who believed in infant baptism. And so one way of distancing themselves is by using that word ordinance. Now, when some people look back at this liturgy, they see this word ordinance and they say, ah, you know, this shows that they weren't sacramentalists. But as Richard Muller would say, and I think he's right about this, concepts come before terms. And I believe that Baptists certainly operated with a concept of sacramentalism, even though they use terms like ordinance, like you mentioned in the second London Confession. So one of the things you, you work out quite significantly in the book is how covenant theology is ultimately going to aid our theology of baptism. And I would say probably when you're writing this book, that's a, a revolutionary idea, but it seems to me like over the last five to ten years, among a lot of Baptists, this has become more commonplace where they're realizing the, the value and importance of covenant theology. I would be interested to hear, number one, just the general, like, give me the pitch why covenant theology matters. But for those who already, like, believe that, where do you think um, the original Baptist sort of articulation of covenant theology fits with some of the contemporary frameworks that we have today? So Sam Renahan's done a lot of work to advance sort of like the 1689 federalism sort of uh, terminology, and you have others who are still wanting to advance what they might call a 20th century sort of Baptist covenant theology. Like, what do you think the original sources are actually doing with their covenant theology? Well, I, I believe that this is where there's a lot of fun looking at the primary resources. The 16th, 17th, 18th centuries are just full of debates um, surrounding covenant theology. And I'm only looking at English-speaking resources. The debates, of course, extend into the continent as well. But let's just consider the English-speaking resources. You have um, Anglicanism kind of branches off into all these different factions. You have separatists, Puritans, eventually Baptists. Um, and they all have these varying understandings of continuities and discontinuities between the Old and New Covenants. And so what, what I argue is that you just have, um, all, it's almost like the Wild West. You know, you have these floodgates open and then you have all these different ideas of um, what possibly could be covenant theology. One of the biggest surprises for me in my book was looking at um, general Baptists from the 17th century um, these were Baptists that were more Armenian in their soteriology. And one of their primary writers was a guy named Thomas Grantham, uh, a pastor. And he had Armenian covenant theology. Um, he was comfortable talking about a covenant of works with Adam. He was com comfortable talking about a covenant of grace with Adam. <laughs> um, and with all of Adam's offspring covered by this covenant of grace, in, in Armenian style, so that way someone opts out of it, so to speak, by becoming a sinner. And so in, in my book, I try to argue for, um, I feel a little bit weird saying this, but a, a big tent, I suppose it's still a, 
Baptist tent, so it's kind of small in the, in the broader scheme of things. But what I wanted to do was say, okay, here in the 21st century, let's say you're not a Second London Confession Reformed Baptist. That's okay. Um, there is still a way that covenant theology can be helpful. And for me, what, what I think is most helpful about it is giving a framework within which to put our theology of baptism. You know, if, if, what, if my big beef is, if my big problem is we say all the things baptism doesn't do and can't accomplish, well, then what does it do? And that's where I argue, hey, covenant theology can be helpful. Now, let's say you're not a subscriber to the Second London Confession. There's still this understanding that there's one people of God headed up by Jesus Christ. And so in covenant theology, we call that the covenant of grace. Like in Ephesians 2, God has formed one man out of two, bringing the Jews and the Gentiles together under the headship of Christ. And as Baptists, we very much believe in, in the new covenant, the idea that, that only spiritually regenerated believers are part of this new covenant and part of the joys of Jeremiah 31. We no longer have to tell someone to know the Lord. Everyone who's a part of this covenant already knows the Lord. To me... This actually was a bit of a surprise. I, I had mentioned earlier that three of the four readers of my dissertation were Reformed, and I don't know how often they had really um, interacted with Baptist theology, so it was, it was a surprise to them that we Baptists actually thought that our churches were mostly made up of regenerated people. And it was almost like this, a uh, little bit of a chuckle, like, well, good luck with that. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, um, we, we baptize people in good faith, like, Obviously, only God knows for sure who is truly regenerate, but, but yes, part of the idea of believer baptism is that we only baptize those who profess belief. But for them, that was kind of a big surprise. So I think that's really the key, the new covenant. If, um, you know, let's say you're not comfortable with covenant theology in general, covenant of grace, covenant of works, covenant of redemption, let's focus on the new covenant. How, how does baptism fit into that? Well, I argue it's a, it's a confirming rite. Uh, that, that it's a sign and seal that one has entered into that new covenant, confirming their faith. So to come back to the historical question of how things changed away from a sacramental view, um, would, would you say that maybe perhaps at the end of the 19th century with the rise of dispensationalism, perhaps that, that might be related to a shift away from a sacramental view? Or perhaps more is it more related to the the second great awakening i know i had heard one person say that largely through the second great awakening practices about the lord's supper shifted as there was kind of a frontier uh mindset and i'm i'm just curious to 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 ask about were, were there his, do you think there might be historical reasons to think that understandings of baptism might have changed as other i guess religious experiences and developments of theology emerged? Yeah, this is why if there's one thing I wish I could change about my book, I'd love to have this chapter because I personally, Garrett, am interested in the same answers. I, I can have hunches on the different factors that might have led to sacramentalism being eclipsed. I mean, in the early 19th century in America, you have, like, say, Nathan Hatch's work, The Democratization of American Christianity and, and individualism and almost like a, um, a minimizing of, you know, having um, clergy who are well-versed in the biblical languages and theology. That kind of goes hand in hand, perhaps, with a more individualistic approach to, to the ordinances. But to be honest, 
I'd love to I'd love to see a study out there. So um, perhaps we have a listener who's thinking about a, a thesis or a dissertation topic. I'd love to see some work out there that really explores this because I too would like to know the answer. I'm curious. You you've mentioned several times uh, the terminology of sign and seal for baptism. I like that. However, I would guess that the vast majority of Baptists, at least today, would say, yeah, baptism is a sign, but it is not a seal. So why would you say that as a Baptist you can say that baptism is a seal? I think typically when I read people who are objecting to this, it's saying, well, the seal is the Holy Spirit. The seal is not baptism. So walk me through the logic that you have for that. Yeah, and even in the the 17th century, among people I mentioned in my book, there is there is divergent opinions. Some say the Holy Spirit is a seal, not baptism. Others say the Holy Spirit uses baptism as a seal. For me, I like thinking of baptism as a seal, and it's because I don't think it's mutually exclusive to say that, that baptism is a seal and the Holy Spirit is a seal. Um, like, let's, for, for just a brief moment, think about Aristotle's um, causes. Um, you know, for listeners, this would be the idea that for any thing, there's different things that cause it. And so two causes that I think come up here would be the efficient cause and the instrumental cause. And so being instrumental, let's think about a musical instrument. If you were to see a saxophone, you know, sitting um, in my house, this saxophone would not make beautiful music because I do not know how to play the saxophone. So if a saxophonist were to come and pick up the saxophone and play beautiful music, that person is the efficient cause of the music. They're making the music, they're causing the music, but they're using the instrument, the saxophone, to cause it. And so I argue that baptism functions as a seal of the new covenant because the Holy Spirit uses baptism as an instrument. And once again, we can think about fittingness, um, thinking about fittingness. A saxophone is a fitting instrument. You can blow air through it and it has different valves that turn that air into beautiful music. Baptism is a fitting instrument to be the seal of the new covenant because it confirms one's faith. And so there are clear texts of scripture that say the seal is our, or the, the Holy Spirit is our seal. And I say, yes, absolutely. And because I don't believe that baptism is necessary for salvation, I believe that people are, are saved and sealed independent of whether or not they receive the rite of baptism. But uh, maybe this is a weasel word, but I say baptism is the normative confirming seal of one's entrance into the new covenant. And I believe that's how the the Bible really does present it. And so if I think of it as confirming that one is now a disciple, confirming their faith, um, I I believe the Holy Spirit uses baptism in this way. But there there was divergent opinions in the the 17th century about this, and I would imagine there are divergent opinions now. That's my opinion. I have had conversations with Presbyterian brothers who have used the language of sign and things signified. And maybe another phrase would be something like sacramental efficacy that I've heard used. Um, for, for baptism, we have a, a theology of what baptism signifies, and we have sacramental language of means of grace. So I was hoping you might help explain your view of how exactly does the sign of baptism relate to the things signified? Um, I hope that question makes sense. It, it does, because in my book I talk about how when I, when I do look at the primary sources of Baptists who are kind of 
trying to explore sacramentalism, there becomes two divergent views of sacramentalism in the resources. And one view um, I really associated it by the end of my book with um, Anthony Cross out of Oxford, um, where the relationship between the sign and what it signifies faith is almost one-to-one -one correspondence. Um, and I believe that G.R. Beasley Murray would be similar in this aspect where um, faith and baptism are so connected that you really can't have one without the other. And I argue that there's difficulty there um, just because I believe that faith and baptism have an asymmetrical relationship and that faith is what matters. Faith is, is where we can say that a relationship between someone and God has really began, so to speak. Now, theologically, maybe there's other things behind the scenes, but, but faith is the moment of salvation. And so I don't want to muddy the waters by trying to lump baptism into that. And so that brings me to that second point of view. The second point of view I see in the sacramental literature, and Stan Fowler um, finds this and, and espouses it, and I think he is right, is that the relationship between the, th you know, the thing and the thing signified in baptism is that baptism confirms what is already there. And so I think that goes hand in hand with the language of sealing. You know, it's, you know a seal doesn't create a relationship, it, it, it seals it, so to speak, it confirms it. And so there the relationship is, okay, this person already has faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and now through the rite of baptism, um, baptism is a way of confirming that relationship that's already began. And so this, the sign is, is pointing to the fact that this salvation has occurred, that this person is now united in Christ in his death under the waters and then, and then in Christ's resurrection out of the waters. And so I think that's a crisper way to um, think about the relationship between the two. Th this in part, you know, you talk about Presbyterians, I think this is a difficulty on the, on the pedo-baptist side. Um, like, for example, when I was at Calvin, it was a big controversy over pedo-communion. And I think as part of that, I, I would say muddying of the waters, what is the status of someone in the Reformed tradition who is baptized but not yet, you know, had their confirmation? And so that's why I think viewing believer baptism as a seal and as a confirming sign really helps make that distinction clear. I like that. I always think putting the, the, the two sacraments together is a powerful argument against pedo baptism or those who don't practice pedo communion anyway. Garrett, you were going to say something. Um, I was going to ask, when I, when I teach on baptism at, at my church and in conversation with other people, I'm often asked about, you know, what, what exactly is necessary for it to count? Um, and so I, I usually think about in my head something like like an irreducible baptismal minimum. And so I'm thinking about things like it has to be in the triune name. It needs to be baptism in a true church. Um, sometimes I will even include things like it It ought to be performed by someone who is authorized by the congregation uh, to administer it. Um, but there, there are other things you could add, too. It needs to be um, by immersion in water. Um, it needs to be, does it have to be in a corporate gathering of some sort? Uh, does it need, could, could it be on a, on a, on a weeknight or a Sunday? I, I don't know. Do you have any particular guidelines or criteria about what counts as a valid baptism and what sorts of things, if, if, if one of those criteria isn't met, you would say, we would need to do this properly, or, or maybe that just wasn't baptism at, at all? 
I do have, for me, I think there's probably two different things going on here. So first, let's talk about what makes a baptism valid. And I think that's one category of things. And then another category could be best practices for baptism. And so thinking about the first category, what makes a baptism valid, I think you're on the right track. Um, it needs to be Christian baptism. And I, I know there's some people out there that debate baptism in the triune name or baptism just in Jesus' name, which I kind of view as a red herring. It's the idea of Christian baptism, whether a baptism, you know, if we believe in the Trinity, we believe that Jesus is divine. <laughs> so it's not like you're baptizing in the name of a different God. But yes, it's Christian baptism. And then as a Baptist, then I believe what makes a baptism valid is that it is a believer who is being baptized. So for me, the proper candidate matters. Um, and, and this is probably one of the most controversial parts of my book, is that for me, I argue that there is a meaning of baptism as an expression of faith, and that meaning cannot be applied to infant baptism. And there are Baptists who disagree with this. They believe that um, baptism's meaning, um, you could reverse the order. Someone's baptized and then comes to faith. It's just the same as having faith and coming to baptism. I argue that's not true. Those cannot mean the same things. And so for me, a valid baptism is believer baptism. Now, that being said, a lot of the things you mentioned, I think are probably things where we talk about best practices. Um, like I argue in my book that baptism is something that joins us to God's covenant community. That's a big covenant community, the covenant of grace that involves all believers in Christ, even Old Testament believers, New Testament believers, past, present, future. But I do believe baptism is a church right. So it's also joining us to this local expression, this visible church. And so kind of like you mentioned, Garrett, I prefer that a, that a, that a representative of the church is the one doing the baptizing because baptism is two ways. Not only is this individual confirming that they are a believer, that they are a Christian, but God's people, God is confirming that he has also taken hold of them and that now this person is a member of our family. And so I do believe that you, know, you should have at least representatives of the church there, the person administrating the baptism, and of course the people there. Does it have to be in the church facility? No. Uh, does it have to be on a Sunday? I don't think so, but I do believe that the church should have an opportunity to be there to be a part of it. And so those are just some things that come to mind. I guess the, the other thing you mentioned was the mode. And when I was in West Michigan, I, I went to a Baptist church, and we had a person in my Sunday school class. He grew up um, Mennonite, and their practice was is they would only baptize in running water by immersion. And if you couldn't baptize in running water, because it was, say, winter in Ohio, they would use pouring, kind of like they did a K. And so at the time, our Baptist church in West Michigan had it in our bylaws where we as a church could do that, but we would not accept someone else who came to our church who had that mode. And so when he um, presented himself for membership, the elders of the church, they said, well, this is kind of a weird thing in our bylaws. Let's see if we can change it. Oh boy, that business meeting did not go well. Um, all of a sudden people were talking about how we were gonna accept infant baptized people. And um, it, was, it was a disaster. I felt really bad. Um, because for me, I don't think the mode is like that. Like if you're baptized by pouring, okay. I, you know, I think that that's still a valid baptism, even if I believe immersion shows the visible gospel through the burying and the resurrection better than pouring. If you were baptized as a believer, then I think it counts and it's valid. So those are the, those are the answers. Valid baptism, I believe, is bat Christian baptism and believer baptism. And then best practices for baptism, I do mention some of those in my book. And I do believe it's tied to the meaning. 
like one issue that I think North American Baptists face more than Brazilian Baptists and more than British Baptists is, is baptizing children that are very young. And it's almost like we've presented baptism as the meaning of it is, well, this person understands the sinner's prayer. And a four-year-old can understand the sinner's prayer. I did when I was four. But if the meaning of baptism is just, okay, that this child understands that, well, then I guess you could baptize them. But if the meaning of baptism is that I am ready to be a confirmed disciple, taking hold of the privileges and the duties of being a confirmed disciple, well, then maybe a four-year-old wouldn't be a great candidate for that. And so that's something that was instructed to me. Um, I teach Sunday school at my Brazilian church, and uh, we got a piece of paper that asked for some dates, you know, date of birth, date of anniversary or, or wedding, and then also date of baptism. And it was funny. My wife and I were the only two people in the class who didn't know our exact baptism date. All the other Brazilian Baptists, they knew it. And some of them, they weren't Baptists until they were 17, 18 years old. One was a pastor. So I thought of John Gill. John Gill was baptized at 17. I think he already knew him. 10 languages by then, you know? Um, so it's interesting, just the different practices around the world. So I think I have different questions than Garrett has on these questions okay. of valid. <laughs> uh, my, I guess my initial question is the age one. It, it That seems to me to be the, the, the most difficult pill to swallow to say, I'm going to delay baptism because of uh, attaching particular meanings to it. Especially if we're thinking of baptism alongside the sort of like there's an objective promise that God has given us in this. Why would we not want to say, obey immediately, here's water, why not? I, I may be seven, I may not comprehend everything, but so what? The 63-year-old who just became a Christian doesn't comprehend everything either, and yet we're going to go ahead and baptize them. So what what's the real reason in your mind that we would want to to delay it. And where's the line? Like, when do we, I know Mark Dever, what is he, does he do 18 years old? He just has an arbitrary, like once you're 18, you can mm -hmm. be baptized before that. We're not. So that cuts, it makes it very clear. Like there's no like gray ambiguities, but to me, that's like, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> so uh, give me some clarity on that. For me, I, I think that this is where theology can help. If, if we, if we espouse that baptism is a confirming rite then what we're saying is that you already are a member of the visible church. You already are a believer. You already are worshiping with the church, and we are welcoming you. Um, in the confirmation process, what's different is now you've had your opportunity to say, okay, um, I've considered the privileges of what it means to be a confirmed disciple. I've considered its obligations, like obligations of being part of the church on mission, not just part of the visible church at worship, but part of the church on mission. There are obligations here. And I want to say, okay, I'm ready to take that next step. I'm ready to be a confirmed disciple. So for me, I think that if we have this understanding of baptism, then we, that can go hand in hand with recommending that people not be in such a hurry. I, I think that there can be reasons to baptize quickly. One is if you believe it's necessary for salvation. Um, well, then obviously, yes, uh, almost like Acts. Well, anybody forbid water to baptize these people. But if we don't believe that, okay, then we can maybe wait. The next is kind of what you mentioned, Jordan. Um, you know, if if it's a matter of understanding, well, then, you know, this side of God's kingdom, we all see through a glass darkly, even the Apostle Paul. So uh, why not just baptize younger? I can understand that rationale. And for me, I think that's where theology can help. Um, it's not so much a matter that baptism means that you understand the gospel. For me, for the covenantal view, it's this idea that you are ready to take the next step to become a disciple. And I think that's a lot to ask out of a child. Um, 
you know, whether it's a lot to ask out of an adolescent or a teenager, that's a different story. And so I, I can't speak for Mark uh, Deaver, but in my book, I don't, I don't set an age. Um, what I do say is that um, pastoral discretion is key uh, because you could have exceptional people. Um, you could have people who maybe have special needs. And so, you know, perhaps they might not be able to really comprehend the, the duties and privileges, but they, but they comprehend what they comprehend. Um, one other thing that I think is good to consider, Jordan, is, is kind of the byproducts of baptizing people very young. And what I have experienced is that what often happens is there's a crisis of faith, and then the person wants to get baptized again. Um, like I, I know some people who were baptized rather young, and then they were rebaptized at a church camp. Um, now, shame on, in my opinion, shame on the Baptist church camp and on the Baptist leaders who are baptizing children away from their family, away from their church family. That's not the fault of the children. But I do think there's a lot of confusion if baptism, you know, is, is something that we have to do and it's something that, you know, means that we really are a believer, then it kind of opens the door, in my opinion, for people to seek rebaptism, And that's something that I really hope that we can discourage because for me, I think it's a beautiful thing to look at as this is the moment when I really confirmed my pledge as a disciple. And I can look back at this even in times of trial and need to say, okay, um, God has put his hands on me. I've, I've pledged to him. I'm going to stick through it because growing up for me, I, I don't, I don't know your guys' stories, but I grew up in a fundamentalist church. And so I prayed the sinner's prayer hundreds of times, you know, just to make sure one took, or if I had a bad day, just, you know, that worry. And so it was very freeing for me to kind of look at covenant theology and see, okay, um, you know, there's a whole lot going on that's well beyond my pay grade. Um, I can rest in God's promises and what he's already done through Christ. That, that's great. That's helpful advice to me. I, I run into that issue of rebaptism um, often in, in my ministry in a college town in the Deep South. Um, so I, I want to ask you maybe a slightly different question. I, I do, I do want to come back to the question of... Um, how baptism relates to the other ordinance, the other sacrament. Um, so a lot of my own research relates to the issue of open and closed communion. Um, so I'm interested in your position on it, but also maybe just to put it in some historical context, this, this debate emerged in the, you know, the 1670s famously with uh, Kiffin and Bunyan, and then again in the 1770s with... Ryland and Turner and um, Abraham Booth and uh, Fuller and William Carey and Robert Hall and Kinghorn. There's, it's, it's been a recurring uh, debate throughout Baptist history. And in the Second London Confession, they don't really stake a position on it, though there's an appendix to the confession that addresses the issue. And then in the Baptist Faith and Message, uh, the, the current edition, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, it talks about how baptism is a prerequisite to coming to the Lord's Supper. And so I'm interested in just in your own perspective on it is baptism, believer's baptism, a prerequisite to coming to the Lord's Supper? Personally, I can't make that argument. I, I don't think there's a biblical argument that, that presents baptism as a prerequisite for the Lord's Supper. But... I do think that if we look at covenant theology, and if we conceive of baptism as a sacrament of the new covenant, 
and the Lord's Supper is the sacrament of the covenant of the new covenant, then what is the relationship? And that is one where I I personally have struggled. When I was researching my book, um, there's a person who used to teach in Oxford at Regent's Park named Paul Fitz. And he he has some great works on Baptist sacramentalism. And in my book, I, I kind of uh, critique him a little bit because when it comes to the issue of children in the church and the Lord's Supper, um, kind of like what Jordan had mentioned earlier, one of the arguments against waiting to baptize people is, hey, the Lord's Supper is this beautiful opportunity for um, Christ to um, to communicate his presence and his sustenance of us. And and we're barring people from that by you know just waiting to baptize them. So Paul Fitz says, well, why not just let them take of the Lord's Supper? Um, you know, they are members of the visible church. They are with us. And if baptism is more linked to being a disciple with all of its duties and privileges, why do we have to connect the Lord's Supper in that way? Now, 11, 12 years ago when I wrote my book, I said, well, I disagree with Paul Fitz here. I think that maybe he's confusing things. At that time, my oldest child was seven. Um, now it is 11, 12 years later, and I've had to navigate as a dad um, my children growing up, and what do we do about the Lord's Supper? And then on top of that, a few years ago, you have the pandemic starting. And here in Brazil, I don't know about in North America, a lot of churches encouraged people to tune in to worship and then also um, for the Lord's Supper to prepare elements themselves to do it together. And so you had a lot of opportunities for kids to, um, to kind of ask questions. And so here's where I might feel a bit inconsistent, Garrett, but I, I will admit something here <laughs> is um, one thing I found myself changing my views on and maybe maybe I'm a coward because I'm a dad and whatever, but I let my kids partake of the Lord's Supper without being baptized. And I thought of Paul Fitz and I thought maybe maybe he's right. Maybe maybe theological distinction, distinctions can help us here. Maybe the Lord's Supper is more about um, the Lord's table and our relationship with him and less about the new covenant. But I don't know if I have a great reasoning for that. I will tell you what I practiced as a pastor, you know, thinking more historically about the open, closed communion debates. When I was a pastor, I presented the table as Christ's table. And so I encouraged people who who's, who believed that they belonged to Christ, you know, who, who were believers in good faith, I would welcome them to Christ's table because I argued it wasn't my table. But I do respect the closed communion position. I understand it. Um, that paper you mentioned was a paper I wrote for Richard Muller about John Gill. And what I found fascinating about his argument is he even envisioned that he would go um, fulfill the pulpit at a different church, preach the, the word, which at least historically Baptists thought was a means of grace. But he would not partake communion at said church because he wasn't a member in his proper church or you know proper church order. So where he got that from, I, I don't quite remember. But you know, it's just kind of interesting. You'll you'll go take the pulpit, preach the word of God, but not take the Lord's Supper. So I guess all that's to say is two hundred years later, I guess we still have a lot of variety on on practices and um but I, I guess I'll have to I, I, I doubt Paul Fitz ever read my work, but I should apologize to him and say, you know, maybe you were on to something over the years. I, I think maybe um maybe what you said is right that, that the Lord's Supper is more about our connection with Christ. And maybe it's okay for someone to take part of that, even if they haven't confirmed that relationship through the sign and seal of baptism. Garrett, if you had one last question you want to ask, this is the time to do it. Unless you're going to open up a can of worms. <laughs> I will leave the cans closed. I, I think that I think that's a that was a great answer, and um, and just really a fascinating uh, 
note to end on. I, I will say, most of the time where I, when I have seen my own friends and people that I know really wrestle with the issue of baptism and, and its relation to the supper, but just baptism in general, is when they have children. Um, when, when they have newborn children, they have to ask, what is the relation of my child to the church, to the new covenant? And quite often, they find the Pado baptist view to be persuasive and comforting for various reasons. Now, I don't, I don't want to portray those fr- personal friends of mine as making that transition solely for emotional reasons. But I, I have to believe that, that that does play some factor in the persuasive force of the Pado baptist position. I know there are other biblical and theological arguments as well, but I've just noticed, just as as I've got young children myself, that a, a lot of my friends, that's been a major stimulus to really ask this question. Um, so maybe, Brandon, could you give a word to um, people with young children or people who expect and hope to have young children uh, in the near future about how to think about baptism? I think for me, as long as there have been Baptists, there has been the problem of what do we do with our own children? And I don't think that's a coincidence because when we think about the New Testament, there just isn't anything to go off when it comes to the question of children in the church. Now, I know our pedo friends differ and say that there's infant baptism there, but um, that's where we've always, for three to four hundred years, had to defend ourselves. Um, I, I remember reading the primary sources and you have tract wars between Baptists and Reformed and about how we believe our children are pagans and um, baby dedications. That's been a Baptist practice since the 17th century. Um, but I think amid all of that, the encouragement I have for people is that, um, that God and his grace are big. Um, I remember one time N.T. Wright came to Calvin and uh, he gave an example and maybe it's original with him, but even if it isn't, he'll take credit, right? Uh, you have a, a couple different balloons and uh, you know his question would be, well, which balloon is more full? And of course, the answer that a lot of times children or us adults would get, well, the bigger balloon. And he'd say, no, they're both full. They're both equally full. And that's something that stuck with me over the years is that our, our children, um, and I've, I've now, I've been blessed with three children. The youngest now is almost 14, so they're not little anymore. But I've been able to see that firsthand that as they've gotten older, they've been able to continue being full. And when they're four or five years old, they're full. And so I don't think the response to that parental urge is to, is to become a pedo-baptist, although you and I both have friends, Garrett, who have. Um, and I, I still love my friends who did, uh, no doubt about that, because we're all part of, you know, we're all Christians. But I do think we can encourage our own children that, yes, they are part of the visible church. I don't understand. I don't want to cede that ground to pedo-baptists when they argue and say, well, you guys, your, your kids are pagan. They're not part of the visible church. And I'm thinking, well, well, who told my kids that? I, I see them on Sunday singing praises to the Lord's name. I, I see them praying. I see them reciting the creeds, um, reciting scripture with us. How on earth are they not part of the visible church? Um, And so I I think we just can encourage that, yes, God is constantly, graciously involved with our children's lives. And for me, it's an issue of theology. What is the meaning of baptism? Um, Is baptism the beginning of of someone's relationship in the covenant of grace because of their believing parents? Or is baptism an expression of somebody's faith confirming that they, they themselves, not their parents, but they themselves are a disciple of Christ, willing and ready to take on his privileges and duties? Well, if it's the latter 
then it's not a it's not a big problem that they're not baptized yet. Their time will come, Lord willing. And in the meantime, absolutely, they're part of the visible church. They're joining us, and what a privilege it is to hear your kids singing when they get that age, and and to and to hear their questions. I think about the Old Testament. Don't you love those passages like in Exodus and Deuteronomy where where it says, and when your children ask you, why are you doing this? Tell them. I love that, you know. And so when your children ask you when the Lord's Supper comes around, why can't I have some? Well, you can tell them. Uh, and so I, I just think it's part of the joy of being a parent. So Baptist, Baptist parents out there, don't lose heart. Your children are full and they are part of the visible church. You can hear it. You can see it. Um, don't worry about what people on the Internet may argue about who used to be Baptists. Don't listen to them. I like it. Don't, don't listen to the former Baptist. No, I'm kidding. This has been awesome, Brandon. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us about baptism. As a reminder, go ahead. I'll put the link in the show notes. So if you're listening on your phone or whatever, you can just click the link. It'll take you directly to the website to get a copy of Brandon's book. And uh, read it. Enjoy it. Um, profit from it. We thank you, Brandon, for your labors in this. Even though it was a long time ago that you wrote it now, it's still bearing fruit. And I hope it continues to do that. So... Thanks for this, and everybody who's been listening, thank you for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, and we'll talk to you guys soon. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.